But we're also beginning to understand the genetics of the aging process itself. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA and 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, 97.5 K248BR in Santa Cruz, and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. After these news headlines, it's Stone's Throw with Jennifer Stone. I'm Christina Onestead with these KPFA news headlines and updates on the fires burning in Northern California. The Nuns Fire near Glen Allen and Kenwood is rapidly approaching the Oakmont Senior Citizens Community. It is still under mandatory evacuation. Curfews have been imposed in mandatory evacuation areas in Sonoma County, including the area near Conningtown Mall on Steel Lane between Piner Road and Guerneville River Road. The curfew is between the hours of 6.45 p.m. and 7.15 a.m. Officials continue to investigate the cause of the fires that have ravaged the North Bay Area, destroying some 2,000 structures and displacing 20,000 residents. Cal Fire Chief Ken Pimlot says there's a strong chance the cause could be arson. I will tell you the chances that it's lightning uh, are is probably fairly minimal. You know, these are all fires that were in areas where they were, you know, they're populated. Uh, and uh, 95% of our fires in the state um, are started by people of some form. And so, but we're actively looking into all of them. 17 wildfires have burned 115,000 acres in the state. 15 people are dead from the fires in Northern California, nine in Sonoma County, three in Mendocino County, two in Napa County, and one in Yuba County. 3,200 people stayed in shelters last night. The Sonoma County Sheriff says they've received missing reports of 200 people. 45 have been located. Again, Pimlot says people who are evacuated should not return to their homes. These people ran out of their homes uh, literally with minutes notice. And so literally barely the clothes on their back. And so they don't people don't know what's left. And uh, there's always a desire to get back in and find out what's left. Did my home survive? Uh, they are extremely hazardous areas, and that's why we put in evacuation zones. And we, when people leave, we don't allow folks back in because uh, of those hazards. And, and they are very real hazards. When you burn an urban area like this, electrical lines, gas lines, uh, structures that are unstable, uh, hazardous materials. 4,000 personnel are committed to firefighting efforts, including the California National Guard, firefighters from throughout the state, as well as from Nevada, are assisting with responses. Road closures, some road closures remain in effect. Highway 101 is open, but several off-ramps in northern Santa Rosa are closed, including the Bicentennial Way, Mendocino Avenue, and Hopper Avenue ramps. Highway 12 in Sonoma from Whatma Road to Route 121 at Millerick Road in Shelby remains closed until midnight tonight. I'm Christina Onestead. We'll have more headlines at 4 o'clock. KPFA's regular programming continues. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money. Every Friday, happy endings are the rule.
divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is October the 10th. 2017. Most of you will know by now that a vast area of Northern California is on fire. It's burning. The news will be back. Uh, let's see. We have half an hour news at 3.30, headlines at 4. It seems irrelevant to be talking about poets at this time. I was going to tell you about a, a movie about Emily Dickinson. Uh, <laughs> it's titled A Quiet Passion. Now, I don't know what else to do. Just go on with what I had planned, but I caution anyone who goes into those fire zones, you know, just to see how things are going, you know, how people love to watch fire. Uh, many years ago, I went close to the fires here in the Oakland Hills. Uh, that was a terrible time then as now. I found myself up by the Claremont Hotel at one point. Uh, hours and hours of exposure to that toxic air caused me to have respiratory problems for months. I was very sick and I caution anyone who's tempted to go go look around. I mean, those people who are fighting these fires are truly heroic. The first responders and, and all of the uh, firefighters. Uh, now, people, you know, people who live where the fires have devastated whole neighborhoods, well, now these homes... Um, people just want to know what happened, the fate of their houses, uh, their neighborhoods. Now, this, this is too risky. Don't, don't risk your health. Uh, if you insist on going where the air is dangerous, you know, uh, uh, well, just don't go, but wear, <clears throat> wear masks and all that stuff. The, the fires are still spreading, as I understand it at least from the news here. Communication has been disrupted in many ways. People are very angry because they cannot get exact news. If you need to know what's happening, just try to wait for word from whatever news sources uh, you trust. Don't risk your health. And if you've been told to evacuate, get your ass out of there. As early as possible. <laughs> Don't try to say, well, I I read a horrible statistic last night and I wasn't going to tell you, but back in Katrina, it says here that 170,000 animals, pets, pets, uh, were either lost or died in the... In the time after Katrina, that's 170,000 little creatures. And I don't know what's being done with the 
big animals and the horses anyway. Just stay clear. Stay clear if you're one of those who can. It's time enough to learn the worst later on. Or if you're home is safe after all, well, you can be glad about that after the air is uh, clear enough to breathe. I, I don't know when that will be, but uh, it's time enough to grieve later. Emily Dickinson, my poet for today, Emily Dickinson wrote, quote, After great pain, a formal feeling comes, the nerves sit ceremonious like tombs. That is a sad and tragic long poem. Couldn't find it last night. It'll turn up a I can use it maybe next Tuesday. I saw this film about Emily Dickinson late one night uh, sometime back. It is available on cable, but only until tomorrow, Wednesday the 11th, it says here. I had to <laughs> I had to pay $6 rent, yes, for uh, a quiet passion. Uh, it goes on my shelf next to the other the other uh, movies I liked about poets. Um, I'm not sure I like this one. Uh, one of my favorites is called Bright Star. It's about Keats. I recommend that one very highly. Anyway, I doubt if this Emily Dickinson movie is going to be popular because it does give you a formal feeling. It's even stiff. Wonderful uh, cinematography in certain scenes where you see the the poet and then members of her family uh, growing older. I don't know how they did it, but it's the best I've ever seen. Uh, we see them first as very much younger. Uh, that is Emily just coming out of Mount Holyoke School where she became ill. Uh, I don't know what happened to her in adolescence, but it was something rough. Anyway, then we see her again probably in her 40s. Uh, and the same with her father and brother and sister Lavinia. Anyway, the screenplay gave me trouble on this one. As always, what's left out speaks or screams the loudest. We do get these uh, portraits of her family, someone's view of her family in Amherst, Massachusetts. Uh, there were a few others among the few people she knew, even if she never saw them. Um, she tended to sit in the next room while they played the piano, that sort of thing. Now... They're not the ones I would have chosen, but it's no use talking about what isn't there. The quiet passion of the title is shown only uh, with a few scenes portraying Emily writing at her little table, 3 a.m. till dawn. She asks her father permission to do this, saying she will not disrupt the household. I have to remember that these women were not given uh, a room of their own. Uh, she had a little a little corner, I guess, in her bedroom. Yes, she did have that. The father is played by Keith Carradine. Um, 
doesn't have much to do, but his portrait, his persona of the New England patriarch, his terrific stone-faced, <laughs> an evangelical Christian, stern. Uh, but he doesn't force Emily to go to church. Uh, Emily's played by Cynthia Nixon, who is best remembered as the character Miranda in Sex and the City. Cynthia Nixon has become a major stage actor. Lately, i got to hand it to her. Um, she used that, uh, what do we call it, a sitcom as a stepping stone to what I would consider the real thing. Uh, these days, her favorite roles seem to be 19th century women. Women in conflict with Victorian values. You know, the severe oppression of women in the 19th century uh, is amazing. Um, much worse than it was in some of the centuries before that. Anyway, women were legally uh, virtually children in the 19th century. They had no property rights. I think property rights came along late in the century in England. And uh, they did have a better time of it here in America, but not much. Uh, they had nothing they could call their own, uh, not even their children, well-to-do and working women were basically uh, controlled by their um, the male in charge, right? The father, the husband, someone. Uh, Emily's sister, Lavinia, is interesting in this film. She's played by... Jennifer E-H-L-E. I never know how to pronounce that last name. She's the daughter of the great actress Rosemary Harris. Uh, Jennifer's best remembered as Elizabeth Bennett in the TV series Pride and Prejudice. That is the one with Colin Firth. Uh, she's awfully good in that. Anyway, the film does use uh, bits and scraps of the poems uh, but they don't they don't dig into the letters or the biography by Richard Sewell uh, see that was 1974 it's still the best biography Sewell S-E-W-E-L-L that's the biography uh, of choice my favorite uh, anyway if you're going to do a life story I guess you have to limit yourself to certain aspects. There was a great deal here about uh, Bright's disease. It killed Emily in her 50s, 56, I guess. Uh, I question the portrait of her mother, although the actor was fascinating. Huh, talk about morbid. Mm, Brother Austin's wife. Uh, uh, hard, hard to believe. The portrait here. Um, his mistress, Mabel Todd, too. She, she seemed to be in the wrong story. Uh, that Emily would be outraged by her brother's infidelity seems uh, out of character. Uh, at least, uh, at least as they expressed it in this script, uh, I'm sure that she had some scruples, but uh, Austin's mistress, Mabel Todd, was the first, one of the first, uh, 
who collected the poems for publication. Uh, she worked together with Thomas Higginson. Uh, they were some of the first to read and admire Emily's poems. I wrote an essay some years back, and uh, here's a quote from Mabel Loomis Todd, Emily Dickinson's uh, brother's mistress. Now, she says remarkable things. Let's see, here it is. Uh, Austin, brother Austin's later love, Mabel Loomis Todd, seems to be much more sympathetic toward Emily's life and work that is more sympathetic than her sister-in-law, Susan. Oh, there are many books uh, saying that Susan brother's wife Susan was the great love of Emily's life. There's a period when a number of writers insisted that Emily was a uh, lesbian and that her great love was Susan, her sister-in-law who lived right across right across the street, right across the park I guess. Uh, anyway, along with Thomas Higginson, Mabel published the second series of the poems in 1891. One of the first readers was Alice James, the sister of Henry and William James. Uh, Alice wrote in her diary, January 6, 1892, quote, It is reassuring to hear the English pronouncement that Emily Dickinson is fifth-rate. They have such a capacity for missing quality. The robust evades them equally with the subtle. End quote from Alice James. Obviously, Alice got it. Uh, Mabel Todd was herself beginning to write or try to write in order to escape the confines of her role in Amherst. Uh, she wrote in her journal that editing Emily's poems had a wonderful effect on her mentally and spiritually. Quote, they, that is the poems, open the door into a wider universe, wider than the little sphere surrounding me, which so often hurt and compress me. And they helped me nobly through a trying time. Their sadness and helplessness sometimes was so much bitterer than mine that, here she quotes Emily, I was helped as if a kingdom cared. Now, Mabel had to convince Thomas Higginson that the poems were not too crude. He told her to classify them A, B, and C. <laughs> yes. Always they categorize and measure. Uh-huh. Okay. Then he said he would look them over, you know, in their categories. Her prefaces to the poems compare them to impressionistic painting, to Wagner's music. Mabel discovered the strange cadence, the inner rhythms, the spiritual smoke that recalls William Blake. 
She even discovered Emily's humor, especially in relation to her sister Lavinia, a woman who lived much of the time in what Emily called, quote, the state of regret. <laughs> yes. Thought rhymes, thought rhymes, that's what they are. Ah, uh, uh, yes, ah. Uh. I always see Emily in the spring and Easter, yes, when the calla lilies are in bloom. She humored Lavinia um, in the film The Quiet, A Quiet Passion. It is Lavinia who is well-behaved and sympathetic. Uh, that's one interpretation. Uh, even if she was living in a state of regret, uh, uh but Emily always retreated to the garden of her own mind. She wrote, The brain is wider than the sky, it is deeper than the sea, and finally, it is just the weight of God. Those are her words, just the weight of God. <laughs> Three-pound brain, the weight of God, she writes, about God's foreplay. Uh, this poem is included in the movie, but it is it is used at a time when we see that she's near death from Bright's disease. The poem begins, He fumbles at your soul as players at the keys before they drop full music on. She then goes right on to imagine the celestial orgasm itself. Quote, One imperial thunderbolt that scalps your naked soul. Now, I think that the seer, the poet seer, is of course burdened by sensibility but it is also illuminated. Uh, her doctor described her fatal illness, Bright's disease, as, quote, a revenge of the nerves. Emily knew, quote, no drug for consciousness can be, unquote. Well, well, the psychedelic... Um, Folks would be interested that Emily wrote that uh, there is no drug for consciousness can be. She had to get there all by herself with her own psyche. Yeah, maybe sometimes she made it up. She writes, To see is perhaps never quite the sorcery that it is to surmise, though the obligation to enchantment is always binding. Yes, her letters. Go and read Emily's letters. The obligation to enchantment, always binding. I think Emily went through the doors of perception. She went into the frame frame of night, darkness. She writes, quote, You remember, my ideal cat has always a huge rat in its mouth 
just going out of sight. The going out of sight in itself has a peculiar charm. It is true that the unknown is the largest need of the intellect, though for that no one thinks to thank God. As Emily is saying, that no one thinks to thank God for, uh, what is it, our need, our need uh, to seek the unknown, the largest need of the intellect is to seek the unknown. Emily struggled with death, mutability, arrows and thanatos, bedfellows for great poets. She wrote by a departing light, We see acuter quite than by a wick that stays. Aha, I have a footnote, yes, (laughs) twilight, yes. The twilight wisdom her health did not recover after the death of austin's little son gilbert footnote here uh we don't see this nephew uh in the film there's one one short scene in which uh, he's shown as a new baby but little gilbert was a much loved youngster and after he died i think emily was pretty much in a state of despair at this time Mabel Todd wrote I used to sing to Emily frequently in the long lonely drawing room but she never came in to listen only sat outside in the darksome hall on the stairs but she heard every note when I had finished she always sent me in a glass of wine on a silver platter with it either a piece of cake or a rose and a poem, the latter usually impromptu, evidently written on the spot. (laughs) Obviously, uh, Emily did not despise Mabel Todd uh, in the film A Quiet Passion. Uh, We see Emily assault mabel well you know she she yells at her in <laughs> a very a very uh, 20th century maybe 21st century way uh she catches him on the sofa uh her brother austin on the sofa uh trying to make love to mabel now uh oh, i guess a movie has to try to soap things up a bit uh I wish, I wish I had some greater honor to pay this wise woman. Uh, I just want to say that she resurrects my spirits every spring. She dusts me off in time, in time for the uh, summer solstice. I know that the voice of the subversive is heard in our land, that we should come forth and celebrate. We, too, are part of the unknown. The time that is to come. The mystery that Emily was seeking. I wonder if she'd like this movie. I uh, somehow doubt it. Um, Yes, A Quiet Passion. 
nothing quiet about it. Emily uh, wrote, my life had stood a loaded gun. Now, I've always come back to Dickinson, yes, she said. I like a look of agony because I know it's true. Then she writes, if I shouldn't be alive when the robins come, give the one in red cravat a memorial crumb. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air next Tuesday. God willing. Uh, Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Boys, there's your picture. Drop the shadow. Jones, founder of the Dream Corps, former leader of the Ella Baker Center, Color of Change, and Green for All, host of CNN's recurring primetime show, The Messy Truth, with Van Jones. We'll soon be having an outstanding discussion with progressive journalist David Talbot, author of The Devil's Chessboard. This happens Tuesday evening, October 24th, in Oakland at First Congregational Church, 2501 Harrison Street. It is a KPFA benefit with wheelchair access and free parking. Signed copies of Van's new book, Beyond the Messy Truth, How We Came Apart, How We Come Together, will be available. Tickets, brownpapertickets.com, Marcus Books, and other indie bookshops. For Van Jones and David Talbot, October 24th.